contributions of indigenous art forms to our artistic history have been tremendously undervalued and not shown the same amount of value and respect that they're owed. So I love being able to blow up those contributions and those art forms to the same size as an abstract painting and slap that history on the wall next to its European male counterpart and say, hey, y'all were looking at our art forms as you were creating this. You know, we have a relationship. The history of art in this country isn't something that can be segregated between native and non-native. Like we were influencing one another, you know, through trade, through relationships, through looking, through inspiration, our art histories are our art history. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 214th episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Diani Whitehawk, who is a painter and mixed-media-based artist that explores her background as a Native American, and specifically Lakota art forms of beadwork, stitching, and patterning, and how those get incorporated into her love of modernist abstract painting. While her work is visually stunning and and really draws a viewer in, it's meant to elicit this much-needed conversation about how Native American art forms and history is often undervalued, both culturally and especially in contemporary art. And of course, we get into that when we talk a bit about her background and some of her work and practice. I'd like to note that she has a solo exhibition that just opened entitled See Her. It's at the University of Nevada Reno campus in the John and Geraldine Lilly Museum of Art, a brand new facility. And she has an artist talk this Saturday, April 6th at 11 a.m. And the exhibition runs through May 23rd. So if you're in the Reno area, be sure and check it out. It definitely would be worth a trip. Before we dive into today's episode, I'm excited to announce that our 2019 student competition is now open. So if you're a current or graduating MA, MFA student or BA, BFA student, you can apply. Our juror this year is Erica B. Hess. She is an artist as well as the creator of I Like Your Work podcast. You've probably heard it. And again, she's amazing. So we're very excited to have her juring. She'll be selecting three artists from the undergraduate and graduate categories to be featured on an upcoming episode of Studio Break. All you have to do to apply is go to studiobreak.com, look under our competition page, and it's super easy. You submit a small fee, a website, or 10 images and an artist statement, email it in, and you are done. So once again, go to studiobreak.com for more information, and we hope that you would help spread the word. Again, we love getting student work on Studio Break, so apply today. If you need something to listen to while you're working away in the studio, I highly recommend going to studiobreak.com. You'll see there's various artists there that you can check out. You can listen to their interviews right there with the default player. You can find images of their work, links to their websites, 
links to iTunes so that you can stay up to date. And also, you can easily do that by following our social media accounts. So be sure to like our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and of course on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And with those announcements out of the way, here's our interview with Diane Whitehawk. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Diane Whitehawk. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. I got my coffee and I'm all jonesing for this interview. Again, I'm really excited to have you uh, scheduled this finally. I know you've been really busy. Where where are you uh, calling in from today? Uh, right now I'm in Shakopee, Minnesota. Um, my studio is in Minneapolis and I live in Shakopee, just half an hour south of Minneapolis. And is that where you're originally from? I know that, again, you kind of have a crossover, you know, native and non-native European kind of heritage. Um, is is that something I'm assuming that, you know, plays a huge role in, in who you are as an artist and then also your, your background? Definitely plays a large role in my artistic practice. But yeah, I, I'm mixed. My mom is Sichangu Lakota. We're Sichangu Lakota from Rosebud Sioux Reservation in South Central South Dakota. And then my dad is German and Welsh American and his uh, folks settled in Wisconsin. But I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, my mom was adopted off the reservation by missionaries who had settled in Wisconsin as well. So she was relocated to Wisconsin through the that adoption. And that's where she met my dad. So I actually grew up in Madison. Okay. And I'm curious, especially, you know, everybody has so many different backgrounds in terms of, you know, the types of art experiences kind of growing up. Was that something that was very much a prominent part of the home in terms of uh, exploring arts and crafts and making things? And For me, it was. It wasn't a part of the home as in I didn't have immediate family members. I wasn't immersed in the field of arts, but I had a mom that recognized my making capacity. Mm -hmm. So my favorite toy as a child was this giant box in my memory, it's really big. And I think maybe it was an appliance box or something. And she used to just throw everything and anything inside that box that we could make things with. So she would wash like the styrofoam meat trays, uh, put egg cartons in there, office paper, saran wrap, tinfoil, like anything and everything that we could use to build things. That was my favorite thing to do. I used to, we used to make really elaborate <laughs> Uh, we made a bank with a drive through window. We made a car, like things that, you know, you could push buttons down and it had windows. And yeah, so um, I've definitely been interested in creating since I was small. Yeah. And again, that's kind of that interesting kind of creating where there's, you know, it's all imagination based as opposed to angry birds or something. I know that's so dated, yeah. but you know, <laughs> there's so, there's so many digital realms that, you know, you think about in contemporary culture that, you know, just the idea of having something like that or, you know, making blanket forts or, so, you know. Yeah. So again, I always kind of appreciate that kind of, <laughs> that kind of introductory, you know, exploration of crafts and stuff like that. Is that something then as, as you got older that kind of, you know, got reinforced through any kind of, um, you know, schooling or classes or programs, or is that something that, I don't know, how did that, how did that evolve in terms of that being carried over or, or further, I guess? It's, uh, it's always been something I wanted to do. So I was always drawing. I had my mom always had sketchbooks and drawing materials for me. And that's something that I remember doing forever. My The first high school that I went to, I had, I 
did not succeed in that high school. I did not thrive in that environment. It was a fairly negative experience for me. Mm-hmm. But I had an art teacher there that I really dug. <laughs> so the last quarter that I was there, I had an A in art and was failing everything else. So I had like a 0.89 GPA when I left because of my one A in art. And so, you know, that's always kind of been my refuge. And then I transferred schools and uh, really thrived in the second school that I went to. Um, The name of that high school is Malcolm Shabazz City High School. And I will forever sing their praises because I think in a lot of ways they saved my life. But I had great art teachers there and I was able to take classes that I really love. The combination of being able to take art classes that I really loved but also being able to take classes that I really loved from teachers that were phenomenal and that there was just a completely different learning environment set up at that school. You know, I I fell in love with the possibilities of education while I was at the second high school. And that did help, you know, nurture uh, my artistic path as well. Yeah, it's so interesting that so many artists I talk to have that kind of similar experience in terms of like, you know, they're a terrible student, you know, but, but art is this kind of saving grace, you know? Yeah. Well, and then I ended up being an amazing student. Um, I ended up learning how to work that system is what I should say. Like in the right environment, that second high school, I actually graduated with a scholarship for most improved student. And then I nerded out all through college. <laughs> and I was like a 4.0 student, but it was because of the environments like the, the, um, my undergraduate environments were tribal colleges as well. So, you know, attending a, um, kind of mainstream institutions and an alternative high school, tribal colleges, and then kind of back into mainstream academia, I've had a, a view into multiple forms of education and types of education. And so terrible student, not because I or I'm guessing other artists don't have the capacity or the ability, but I think that our mainstream education systems are so flawed in recognizing that there's multiple forms of intelligence and multiple forms of teaching. And Absolutely. It's an interesting conversation. But yeah, it's funny that as artists, most of us, a lot of folks just rebel against that, the norm and the way that it's kind of forced upon us. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I always gravitated towards things that I could actually like do, you know, like learn by doing as opposed to, you know, looking at, looking at numbers and trying to figure out what they, you know, how to calculate them or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, even like yeah. something like home ec or, you know, making awful pillow covers or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you teach those subjects? That's huge. How, how are they taught? And is it done in a way that it's engaging? And connects with multiple students who have different styles of learning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so so was that something then when you you know were kind of looking to explore it as an undergraduate student? Was that something then that you knew you wanted to go into to art or art in some capacity? Yeah, definitely. So after I graduated high school, I took a few classes at a local technical college, and continued, you know, exploring in that way. And those were all art classes, art and design classes. And then I worked full time and snowboarded and (laughs) got deep into the music scene for a while. And I didn't actually go back to college full time for until six years after graduation, after my high school graduation. And then I did, I knew that I wanted to 
explore art. I knew that that was something I wanted to do. It's always been something I've, I've done, you know, and so it's, it's my favorite thing to do. Right. So mm-hmm. I didn't have money for college and I didn't come from a family that had money for college. Mm-hmm. The school that I wanted to go to is called the Institute of American Indian Arts. It's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I did eventually get there, but I didn't get there first because I was in Wisconsin and like getting to New Mexico, the money that it would take to get to New Mexico felt unachievable, as did the modest tuition costs that they have there. And they really are low. But at that time in my life, I didn't know how to come up with a few thousand dollars that felt impossible. Sure. But there's a tribal college in Lawrence, Kansas, and the tuition is low. And it's a 10 hour drive from Madison. And so I sold some snowboarding equipment and that's how I got to college. <laughs> and I started at Haskell because I, you know, it was achievable and accessible, <clears throat> but they didn't have an art degree. And so what I ended up doing was just taking, you know, exhausting all of the art classes that they had. Mm-hmm. And then I got an associate's degree in education because I thought that maybe one day I would teach art. Then I eventually, I transferred to the Institute of American Indian Arts, and that's where I got my BFA. And so what was that experience like? You know, especially because I would imagine then that the depth of, you know, art history is going to be a lot more, I don't know, in-depth in terms of other cultures and especially Native cultures as opposed to, you know, maybe the kind of uh, state, state, you know, program that you might have for a, a typical BFA program. It's very different. And I, I loved the time that I spent in tribal colleges. Haskell Indian Nations University was a, was a really wonderful experience for me. I was only in school there for three years, but we spent five years there. I met my husband while I was there, had our first child while we were there. So for anybody who might be listening who understands, um, I have a Haskell rascal. <laughs> which is what the babies that come out of Haskell are called. <laughs> and there's a lot of them. Um, Haskell has been around for a really long time. It was previously a boarding school. So there are like generations of kids that are products of the intertribal nature of that school. But it was, it was so beautiful because there's a really intertribal population there. So students come from all over the place. So you have this wonderful experience of learning from your peers on their experiences and uh, their tribe and their culture because you know there's over there's 567 I believe federally recognized tribes in the United States today Uh, there are a lot more before the process of colonization so you know they're all individual cultures languages and practices and so to be able to come together in an environment like that and um, have exposure to folks from all over the country was so much fun. Both of those schools teach from an indigenous perspective. So they teach our national history, but from the native perspective. We're provided a really unique opportunity to have insight into the history of our country that most folks are not taught. Mm-hmm. So I would say we actually get a more well-rounded understanding of the history of this country because most of us have at some point also well you it's kind of unavoidable to be affected by and learn history from the colonial perspective because our country is set up from that perspective the way that we teach the way that we tell our stories is is all still set up from that viewpoint 
And so attending a tribal college where you actually get to dig in and learn the history from the indigenous folks and from the indigenous lens, we have a stronger understanding of what actually took place, which um, is is such a, it's difficult because it's really hard history, but it makes for such strong individuals and people going forward, you know, to contribute hopefully to a healthier model in the future. Mm-hmm. I so value the time that I spent in both colleges. And then, you know, so at Haskell, I got a really well-rounded just understanding of history of this nation and of, of tribal histories. But then at the Institute of American Indian Arts, I got the same thing, but specific to the arts. So we really dig into uh, Native art history and, you know, pre-contact as far back as we can go to uh, our contemporary peers. When I got to grad school, I had to play a lot of catch up to bring myself up to speed on what my peers in grad school had learned. So I had all this, you know, knowledge in uh, indigenous arts and native arts. And then I got there and it was like, I was writing down, taking notes. (laughs) I was sitting in the back of the class like, oh, that sounds important. And this guy keeps coming up in topics. Who is this Jeff Koons? Like, right, right. <laughs> like, you know, I like make little notes and go back after class and like try to bring myself up to speed on major art movements and, you know, really popular people within the field, within contemporary arts. And I had to really kind of do double time because I had to dig into what most folks had been learning already mm-hmm. and then whatever the work at hand was as well. It was really hard to kind of ha- to have to do that, to have to play catch up at the same time. But I wouldn't trade in my experiences at tribal colleges to have had an easier time in that process. Well, and I'm curious, especially to the, the studio side of it, what was that like in, in terms of the differences? And especially after you get to graduate school, I'm sure you're... Well, at Haskell, because it's not, you know, it's changed. I believe they, I think they're working on having a art degree if they don't already but those were fundamental classes so you know drawing one ceramics one that kind of thing and we had nice spaces to work in yeah I appreciated that time there for sure but at the Institute of American Indian Arts I think the major studio difference is the fact that in addition to the studio practices that most folks are familiar with you know we had our painting studios and ceramic studios and printmaking and sculpture and foundry and you know all of that but we also had traditional arts classes so my BFA exhibition was a combination of large-scale abstract paintings and cases of the beadwork and porcupine quill work and parfletch work which is leather like rawhide work on rawhide I had all of those things in cases along with my paintings because I was pursuing all of that while I was there. In that space, that was completely normal and was a non-conversation. Like I didn't have to talk about or conceptually justify why those things were a part of my BFA exhibition and just it just was. But, you know, I, I felt that difference when I got back into mainstream academia and I was accepted in the painting department in Madison. And so for the first semester, I just painted. And then I really started craving and missing this other part of my making, 
which I had learned to do beadwork before I ever learned to paint. So it's, you know, that's been a part of, of my process since I was a teenager. And so I started really missing it and I wanted to do something. But I thought, you know, I thought to myself, well, I can't just start making a pair of moccasins. Mm -hmm. I'm in grad school and I'm going to have to just, you know, I'm going to have to like conceptually defend them sure, (laughs) or why it's important to what I'm doing, you know, to my studio practice. And, and, you know, I mean, the conversations between craft and high art and fine art and all of that, you know, those are all familiar to the field now, you know, and we've, we've got some strong things to fall back into, you know, in regards to those conversations. But there's still a real division between the recognition and value that's placed in culturally based art forms and everything that's considered art with a capital A. Mm-hmm. There's still a really strong division for that. And I think there's a lot of Native artists that are, you know, today fighting back against that, pushing back against those norms. And so even though I know that I have, I had faculty there that totally would have supported me just sitting down and make a pair, making a pair of moccasins. But I also knew that, you know, the system at large, I would have to push back against that. It was a really good challenge to have because that challenge actually led up. It was the kind of instigator that has led to the way that I make my work today. But you were talking a little bit earlier, too, about kind of being exposed to artists that maybe you weren't kind of as familiar with. I'm curious, especially like how modernist painting maybe started to kind of creep in there, too, because I know that's something that you talk about. And certainly you can see, you know, this real kind of uh, hybrid between maybe more native approaches or at least maybe things that you'd kind of learned earlier, as well as, you know, the kind of like modernist abstract kind of aesthetic that's in your work. I would imagine there's some you know, some really fun years then in terms of, you know, developing as a graduate student because they they seem to have merged so so beautifully, you know? I had a painting uh, instructor. His name is Norman Akers. He's a painter. I believe Norman's teaching at uh, University of Kansas right now. Mm-hmm. He was amazing. He is amazing. But he was amazing in the fact that he really wanted us to understand painting. He was one instructor that I had that really made sure that we had exposure to and an understanding of work and the trajectory and the evolution of of certain practices outside of strictly uh, Native arts perspective. And so he would show us slideshows and we would, you know, sit in the painting studios and, and view slides of, you know, different movements within the history of painting key players within the history of painting, easel painting specifically, because mm-hmm. there's a very real human history of painting in every culture that's not strictly relegated to the history of easel painting in the way that we understand it today. Mm-hmm. But he really got into that, you know, and, and so I had an introduction to some of my favorite painters early on through him. Two people that I that I really fell in love with. Marsden Hartley was one of the first that I remember being so drawn to his stylistic approach, but also his palette. And uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat was one of my other favorite. They both still are. Later, when I got to graduate school and I had to start, like we talked about, playing catch-up, you know, I honed in on these areas and these these times in the evolution of 
painting mm-hmm. that I gravitated towards the most. And I gravitate towards abstraction the most, specifically in the eras of, of color field and stripe painting, but also times just, you know, just before that as well. But there's certain artists that I, I kept finding this pattern. I kept figuring out that people who I was really drawn to, as I would go find the catalogs on their work and start reading into their work, were folks that at some stage in their lives had intersections with Native people. So whether or not that they were living in vicinity of and would be you know, seeing their work or that they were deliberately and intentionally looking at Indigenous art and responding to that in their own practice. And so what I figured out was that, you know, the reason I was honing in so hard on these particular artists is because they were familiar to me already. Like what they were producing was familiar to me and spoke to my aesthetic preferences as a Lakota person. So Marsden Hartley's palette speaks to it is akin to the palette of Lakota art forms, you know, particular palettes that are common in our artistic practices. So I look at his paintings and I see bead palettes. And Mark Rothko, I looked at his work and I see wool dresses. Like there's just certain aesthetics there that, that they were drawing from that translated in their work that were familiar to me. And then I was drawn to their work. And so it became this this cycle of of inspiration and affinity. And that's kind of the kicking off point from where I started building my practice because at that time in grad school, I was really trying to figure out where I fit in all of that, you know, especially coming fresh out of eight years in tribal college systems and then being thrown back into mainstream academia. I was (laughs) flailing for a while trying to figure out how uh, to make sense of my experiences in that space. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, especially like as you're as you're kind of wrapping up that experience or kind of coming to a point where those things are coming to, you know, a head or they start to kind of feel like they're they're connected. Are they are they pretty similar in terms of the the types of work that you're maybe currently working through in terms of combining, you know, some of these more mixed media approaches as well as again, I noticed a number of works on paper that include various printmaking processes or, you know, handmade paper as well as painting. So it seems like you currently have kind of, you know, a number of different ways of kind of working through it. Is that something then that developed kind of towards the end of your graduate school experience? I would say that it comes out of a few different places. After that moment where I had this, you know, epiphany that I had to figure out how to fuel both sides of my making passions. So I absolutely love to paint. And I absolutely love to do beadwork and quill work and sew and practice cultural artistic uh, art forms. And I need them all in my life. Mm-hmm. They had previously been kind of practiced in, you know, in, the, in their individual spaces. They definitely conceptually and aesthetically influenced one another, but I hadn't physically brought them together until grad school. The early pieces that came out of that realization and that experimentation, you know, I had to figure out how to make them happen at the same time to fulfill my own desires and needs, you know, like I needed them all and I needed them all to be happening in my studio at the same time. And so the first pieces I was playing in different areas to figure out how to make that work. 
Um, I was playing on paper. I was playing on canvas. I was, you know, using beads. I was using quills. And it was just, it was so a lot of the work that you see today comes out of, you know, the continuation of that playing and figuring out how they successfully work together. Printmaking hasn't been uh, my primary focus, but I do really love printmaking. Mm -hmm. And I've taken a number of courses as an undergraduate. I'll actually get to be making prints with High Point Center for Printmaking. Um, I'm starting that project. We just started a couple weeks ago. And so it's something that I go back to from time to time. And then uh, the pieces that you see that on the website that are done on handmade paper, I didn't make the paper, mm-hmm. but I had a friend in grad school. Her name is Julie Vondervelle, and, and everything that she does, she does sculptural works out of paper that she makes. So I would visit with her in her studio, and she would have these beautiful scraps all over her studio that I thought were just amazing little nuggets uh, themselves and they were her trash you know and so I would pick it up and I'd be like god I love this and she'd be like you didn't have it (laughs) so I would take them back to the studio and I started sewing on them and I because they looked like some of the first pieces that I got from her studio they looked like pieces of buffalo rawhide they looked like hide and so to me they visually they were like a visual one-to-one translation between um, materials that I was already familiar working with um, that came from artistic art forms. And then, but they were paper, you know, and so I could do different things to them. So I was sewing on them. I was painting on them, just trying different things, sewing on prints, doing, all, you know, just experimenting how and where the intersections of these art forms are most successful. Now, today, the work's toggle back and forth between being works that are done strictly in paint that draw from conceptual and visual influences and underpinnings of the traditional art practices. So the painted works uh, reference beadwork and quill work. And really they get it. They also, you know, I'm thinking about other art forms as well, like weaving and basketry and, all of these indigenous art forms that have been upheld by women for generations. But they also are done on canvas and they're done with beads and quills. So I continue to kind of go back and forth and just play and experiment in the various forms that those art forms have had intersections throughout our national artistic history, Mm -hmm. but also in the way that I'm able to bring them all together to kind of create these compositions that reflect my life experiences. And is that something that's informed, you know, like by, by the process of making, you just start making things and you have all these different, I guess, bodies of work going, or is that something that's informed through, you know, meticulous research and notes and just things that you find in your sketchbook that kind of get compiled? I'm always kind of curious because I know, again, there's some people that are real planners or they kind of have you know, I think recently even somebody described having almost like visions of what they want to make in their head and then they kind of, you know, start executing that. Well, I think that's changed over time. In the earlier years, it was really through play and experimentation and, you know, in grad school, of course, intense research and then a real effort to navigate what it means to combine practices within a space that 
has real conflicting value systems. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of negotiation, conceptual negotiation, mental, spiritual negotiation that it took to um, get all of these things to work together in, in in my life and then in my practice. But today I've been doing it for so long that now there are certain conversations that I'm interested in that I've been thinking through in the work for years that I've been, you know, exploring through the work for years, these like underlying um, conversations and points of exploration. I just have been thinking about them for so long that I can, you know, just continuously kind of follow that thread of digging my sketchbook and my planning process is more, I have ideas, you know, like I come up with paintings in my head and then I make thumbnail sketches that are, are pretty rough, but they'll, they'll, rough out an approximate composition and then I have notes next to them so that I don't forget this piece that was made in my imagination. And so there'll be times where the painting that I'm working on, they take a really long time. Mm -hmm. So I have plenty of time to make other works in my head. (laughs) So one that's, you know, really uh, happening a lot, I try to make sure that I or if there's something that comes up that I'm like, yes, that one, you know, and I'll stop and I'll sketch it out and write down the notes so that I can remember that uh, memory later. And so I have plenty of works in my sketchbook that haven't been made yet. And yeah, I guess that's the place that I kind of work from now. One of the things that I that I really gravitated towards looking through your paintings was this painting uh, entitled Resilient Beauty. Mm. I think it's just kind of an interesting combination obviously there's like a a nice you know complementary color system going on in there could you just maybe talk a little bit about that painting and and maybe kind of what's going on there in terms of the process and and all that good stuff sure thing I draw from and I utilize conversations and and teachings and um, motifs that are part of western or mainstream art history just as much as I use those conversations that are embedded in generations of Lakota and indigenous art history. Mm-hmm. And so the use of the complementary colors is very much, you know, drawing from color theory and the understanding of the way that color can fight against itself, you know, and create resistance, but it also at the same time, they balance each other out, right? They're, they're each other's counterparts and I think about those ideas in a very literal and in conceptual ways throughout a lot of my work. Balance and, you know, how something can be the opposite and be complementary at the same time and how we need all of those things to create the whole. Mm-hmm. So there's like really literal approaches to you know, dividing a painting in half by its complementary colors. And then there's also the, you know, kind of, and then there's also deeper conceptual ideas that are embedded in in that as well. And the two halves are, the left half references both porcupine quill work and a particular form of beadwork that a lot of my works either utilize or reference, which is historically been called lazy stitch. I kind of prefer to call it lane stitch because it's not lazy, mm-hmm. but it's the this beading in rows that has been the most highly practiced form of beadwork in Lakota beadwork. So there's lots of different techniques and stitches in beadwork, and they vary in um, 
their approaches and visuals and in techniques and also how you know the like floral versus geometrics and all of that kind of stuff varies from tribe to tribe and region to region uh, but in Lakota beadwork that lane stitch beadwork is the most frequently used and so I referenced that and art form of porcupine quill work which for folks who aren't familiar with porcupine quill work is the precursor to beadwork so on this continent before those glass seed beads were available through trade, porcupine quill work was practiced. Essentially everywhere porcupines roamed and it was also used in a variety of techniques and approaches and styles across the continent. So the transition from porcupine quill work to what has been a prolific legacy of beadwork, because most folks who think about Native art now, you know, they kind of go to a few immediate things in their imagination. And beadwork is always within that top, you know, five list. You know, the hold that Native folks have on beadwork that have developed out of this trade item is really a, um, a signal of innovation. And that is something that is extremely common and you can see the lineage of innovation within native art forms. If you really dig into and look at the history, every time new materials were introduced, native people brought those materials into their already established artistic practices and ran with it. And so beadwork is an example of that. Beads are a trade item. And it's really important to understand that beads are a trade item. But think of the like immense legacy of beadwork that we understand now done by Native people. So it, it's such a beautiful example of the innovation of the generations that came before us. And they, you know, grabbed this, this new material and went with it, you know, ran with it. And now we have this amazing history to look back on and that we continue to practice today. So the left side kind of represents that and then a tr transition from um, quill work to beadwork. And then the right side is a calico fabric pattern, which is another one of those materials that was brought into our artistic practices and has become standard. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the records of trade, so the old ledgers where traders were bringing items for trade to native communities, calico fabric is one of the top of the list and one of the most coveted things to trade for. So in calico, those patterns have become totally standard in our dress. But it's now, because it's so standard, it's almost old school. Mm -hmm. So when you, <laughs> when you use calico today, because like because that pattern has continued, when you look at people's dance regalia, like if, if somebody were to go to a powwow or if they've never been to a powwow, they could simply Google and maybe start with Googling Denver March powwow or Shakopee Sioux Community Wachipi. Wachipi is our word for powwow, W-A-C-I-P-I. -I. Mm -hmm. Don't Google powwow and follow like German hobbyists. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. So if you haven't been to a Apollo, though, just take some time and look. 
because the regalia is amazing, right? But people continue to use everything that's available. So a lot of young people you'll see are using everything under the sun, which includes neons and, you know, bright satin fabrics and rhinestones and glitter and spark, you know, like, you know, that's everything is used. And so this, when you use calico fabric now, it's like your grandma's dress or your uncle or your auntie's skirt or your uncle's ribbon shirt or something like it, it signals old school. It, it's become traditional, right? Mm-hmm. And so that piece is about the resilience of Native people and Native art over generations, despite the forces of colonization, attempted genocide, and all of the things that our communities have faced and continue to face today because of those forces. But our art forms are thriving and our artists are thriving. Our artists continue to thrive despite the environments that they've been subjected to. Right. These are important things for someone to consider. There's that kind of duality like in in the work that's really interesting because, I mean, just even talking about that piece specifically, you can kind of look at, you know, a lot of the other work that you have, especially on your website, dianiwhitehawk.com. There's so much different work. And I think one of the things that kind of really stands out is, again, that kind of that kind of interaction and and play between the two. But then all the, the marvelous detail. I mean, there's just so much detail and you know, I, I love the scale of the paintings being a bit on the larger side. And then a lot of the mixed media works seem to be maybe a little bit more small, I'm assuming, just because they, you know, require that much more time in terms of execution. But I, I'm curious, what's that like in terms of, you know, working through a piece, you know, one of these mixed media pieces, like, say, Interrupted versus, you know, one of the painting works? Do they do they take about the same amount of time or are they something that you have to really labor over, you know, over the course of months? That's the beauty of paint versus the mixed media works. That also, I can go back to grad school for that. One of the first mixed media works that I did was in grad school. And I decided to do this 60 by 90 inch triptych that incorporated 77 inches of quill work in it. Mm-hmm. And quill work takes a really long time. It takes a lot longer than beadwork. A lot of prep work before you even start the actual stitching on the canvas. And I just quickly learned that quill work, it took me months to make that piece. And so I had peers that were, you know, making paintings and, all, you know, making multiple works. And I'm in the studio for months working on one piece. So I quickly learned that that quill work doesn't fit the academic schedule. Um, <laughs> and so I had to figure out different ways to bring the conversations into the work that are embedded in quill work and to fulfill that need that I spoke to earlier, the need to do both. And so what came of that was mimicking quill work and beadwork in paint because it's faster. Mm-hmm. And it also allows me to do things much larger. The nature of quills and beads being as small as they are and how, how long it takes to do that is what has dictated kind of the size of the pieces so they do take longer than the large-scale paintings unless you know recently I've gotten I've made those large-scale paintings even larger and now they take a really long time too Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know doing it in paint does free up how big I can make it 
And I, and I really appreciate that because I think that the contributions of indigenous art forms to our artistic history have been tremendously undervalued and not uh, shown the same amount of value and respect that they're owed. So I love being able to blow up those contributions and those art forms to the same size as an abstract painting and slap that history on the wall next to its European male counterpart <laughs> and say, hey, y'all were looking at our art forms as you were creating this. You know, we have a relationship. The history of art in this country isn't something that can be segregated between native and non-native. Like we were influencing one another, you know, through trade, through relationships, through looking, through inspiration, our art histories are our art history, you know, right? So being able to do things in paint allows me to speak in a format that is familiar in uh, galleries and museums. But doing things in, you know, when, when I'm doing beadwork or quill work on top of paintings, it's also kind of a, it, there's a few functions in that. One, I, I like to do it, you know, it, it fulfills me. Two, the materials are beautiful and I want them on my canvases. Mm -hmm. Three, they elevate those materials that have been devalued in the hierarchies that have been created in our field. So oil paint and marble and stone and gold and all of those things that have been lifted up and things like beads and quills and uh, fabric and all the things that were essentially traditionally mediums that women and people of color used were devalued. And so by putting beads on top of canvas, I'm intentionally rearranging those hierarchies. And audience members are forced to look at, think about, and reconcile the history of beads and work that has been done by Native and people of color and women at the same time or even a beat before they think about the history of easel painting and art forms that have been lifted up by men and predominantly European and European American men throughout our history. So it has a number of different functions. Well, I guess one thing that you kind of asked about and I didn't fully answer was even just like the practicality of working with beads versus paint. Sure. Well, what is the practicality of working with the uh, beads versus paint? <laughs> so, you know, I talked about conceptually why I use them or, you know, when those choices are made and practicality as far as size, you know, I can make much larger paintings than I can the mixed media works. And, you know, so that dictates choices. You know, we've also, I say we because I work with a studio assistant now. Her name is uh, Jenny Kappeman, and she's a phenomenal bead worker. She makes uh, dance regalia and, you know, supports herself through her own commission work. And she works with me in the studio. And so we've really been experimenting on how to upsize the beaded works as well. So for this show that's opening next week, we have the largest mixed media beaded piece 
that I've made yet, and it's a 48 by 48 inch painting with, with beads on there. The beaded pieces have had to be done within a particular size because the beads get really heavy on a canvas, which makes it really hard to work while you're doing it. Like it's one thing that it would be heavy on the wall, but it's another thing that like when you're holding the canvas and working with it, whether it's mounted to something or you're holding it in your arms as you're doing it, it starts to become really cumbersome once a lot of beads are on there. And it's, it's just, it's like this math problem of figuring out how to make them bigger, working with this heavy glass material that's flop on a piece of floppy canvas. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been doing a lot of MacGyvering and figuring out how we can make these pieces bigger and bigger. And it's cool because I have a studio assistant because of these problems. Like, you know, as I went through making these works and I wanted to upscale the beaded pieces as I wanted them to get bigger and bigger and the beads got bigger and the canvases got bigger and the time took longer at that was the point that I was like I need help mm-hmm. and it's great because I've been working with a couple of people in my life that I really value to help continue those pursuits I've been really appreciative for that well, and one thing that I think is obviously going to be really impressive, you know, when this exhibition comes up, and obviously I want to ask you specifically what the name of all that is and where it's going to take place, but the, you know, again, very much like Mark Rothko, you know, you think of these big expansive kind of pieces that, you know, fill your vision. And I think that's one of the things that has to be so powerful, you know, seeing your work in person is that they, again, they take up, you know, this big field of vision and you have this kind of real interaction with something that you know took all this time and you know again can kind of make that kind of impact so the size of things you know I I touched a little bit on on choice you know why I want things to be sizable and so that you know they hold space and make room for indigenous voices and people inside our public art institutions that that's part of my motivation for size but there's also I make very intentional decisions on how I want the work to work, how I want it to operate, how I want it to affect the person that's standing in front of it. I think for me, the strongest works that I've experienced in my life and what I strive to accomplish in my own work are works that hit us in our bodies before they hit us conceptually. So I want something to have that impact in your body where you stand in front of it and you feel it. it. It enters your being in a way that is impactful and creates inspiration and awe and operates through a place of beauty. That's very important to me. And I always want that to happen before you go to the conceptual space, before you dig into what it means and what's inside of it. All of those conversations that are embedded in the work are are really important, but they're very difficult conversations. And we haven't gotten into that on the podcast, Mm -hmm. but, you know, uh, we touched on it a little bit, but they're hard conversations because they deal with the history of our country and how that history affects our lives to date. And they're not easy conversations. And so making things that are grounded in beauty 
and awe and inspiration and the way they operate in this space that feels good. That's, I, I have, I feel like I have to do that because I, I like to, I think about it in a couple different ways. One, I like to seduce people through beauty. So sure. <laughs> it's a way to bring you in and bring a viewer in and then they want to be in the space, right? Like if there's a piece that you love, that you visually love being in the presence of, you are voluntarily in that space and you want to know more. You want to learn more. You want to be there. And so it brings folks together in a place that they, they're voluntarily standing within and then they're more open to the harder conversations that are embedded in the work. So you're, you're more apt to be compassionate to what's presented because you're having a moment of fulfillment in that experience. You're being filled. You're, you're, um, I think that beauty has medicinal qualities. And that's why so many of us keep coming back to art, right? Mm-hmm. Like we keep coming back to art because we want that fill. <laughs> we, sure, sure. We, we crave that fill. We crave that thing that does, that, that fills our spirits in a way that other things cannot. And I think that that, that beauty is a, a human language that everybody can understand and everybody needs. So I want to be able to talk about these difficult conversations, but I want to do it in a way that builds. I want to do it in a way that connects. I want to do it in a way that teaches us how to be better relatives. It teaches us to think about our past, to have critical thinking about how we approach learning, how we approach art, how we approach our lives so that, you know, hopefully we're thinking and we're thoughtful about how we treat one another going forward. So, yeah, that that physical presence that you talked about is really important to me. Yeah, and I th- I think it's one of those things where, you know, graduate school especially can be like a microcosm of that. You know, you experience people from different backgrounds, you know, you interact with them, you come to a much richer understanding. And I think that that's one of the things that's so important about it, especially when, you know, I think about your work and in, in consideration of the, you know, the times that we live in now where there's just so much division and bigotry and just a lack of knowledge about other right. histories. And, you know, and I think that's one of the things that makes your work so powerful. And, you know, so one of the reasons that I've appreciated it so, so much for, you know, years now before we <laughs> have officially kind of set this up. But I think that's one of the things that really speaks to me. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Yeah. And so remind us again, where, where are all these uh, going to be exhibited, these, these new works? What's the, the show entitled? And then please make sure to remind us about this, this talk that I believe is coming up the, at the end of the week after the opening. So the exhibition is titled See Her, uh, and it opens at the University of Nevada, Reno, the John and Geraldine Lilly Museum of Art. And the museum itself actually just opened as well. They built a brand new facility. I have the second exhibition in the space. So if you're in the area, you should go check it out for sure. So the show opens April 4th, and it runs through May 23rd. And there is a gallery talk on Saturday, April 6th, that starts at 11 a.m. Awesome, awesome. And again, please just remind everybody, where can where can they find all of your you know, work online and social media and other places? Um, my website is www.dianiwhitehawk.com. I am on Instagram and Facebook. 
I prefer Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, and then there's there's plenty of information out there as well. To a simple Google search will sure, you. sure. <laughs> well, again, I, I mean, it, it seems like you've got so much going on, so many fellowships and talks and residencies, and you're so active. Yes. Again, it's just really really great to, to talk to you about your work. And I, I know, again, I wish we had more time to really dive into every little single piece because they're so, they're so beautiful and, and thought provoking. So again, I, I really yeah. appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with me today about it. Thank you so much. Yeah. If you don't mind, David, not for a, a moment of self-promotion, but just a moment of extending gratitude. Um, I have gotten a number of awards this year and fellowships this year and it, it means a, a great deal to me so uh, if I could just sing the praises and shout out a little bit to United States Artists Fellowship I, be I believe they're in the process of changing my life <laughs> and I'm so grateful for that the Idlejorg Museum in Indianapolis if you haven't looked into their work yet and what they do they've been supporting contemporary native artists for many years and they do phenomenal work and I have a fellowship through their museum this year and the Jerome Hill Foundation which works in Minnesota and New York um, I have a fellowship through them this year and they the Jerome Foundation also does amazing work at supporting early career artists I have a number of other opportunities and I don't want people to think if they listen that I don't appreciate them all but I do, um, and all that information is available on my website as well. But beyond just you know getting support, as in oh, this artist won something because they're doing something like that. You know, the work that these folks do to make our work possible is so important, and I value it so so deeply. So saying those things is more just a opportunity for me to extend gratitude for what they do to make art keep thriving in our communities. Absolutely. Well, again, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thanks once again to Diani. Be sure to check out her artwork at dianiwhitehawk.com and follow her on Instagram to stay up to date with her social media and work. You can, of course, check it out in person at the University of Nevada, Reno, in her exhibition entitled See Her that runs through May 23rd. And once again, she has an artist talk this Saturday, April 6th at 11 a.m. So if you're in the Reno area, be sure and check it out. If you enjoyed today's episode, please visit studiobreak.com and find plenty of other interviews. Again, each of them have images of the artist's work, links to their website, so you can find out more information. You can listen right in the default player or click that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast. Of course, if you enjoy listening, we love getting comments there. And of course, if you would be so kind as to share it via social media, help others find this podcast, especially if you like something to listen to while you're in the studio and it'll come back to you karmically. If you want to stay up to date with Studio Break, be sure and follow us on social media like our facebook page you can find us on twitter at studio break and of course on instagram at studio underscore break just another reminder that our our 2019 student competition is now open so if you're a current or graduating 
MA, MFA student, or BA, BFA student, you can apply. Our juror this year is Erica B. Hess. She is an artist as well as the creator of I Like Your Work podcast. You've probably heard it. And again, she's amazing. So we're very excited to have her juring. She'll be selecting three artists from the undergraduate and graduate categories to be featured on an upcoming episode of Studio Break. All you have to do to apply is go to studiobreak.com, look under our competition page, and it's super easy. You submit a small fee, a website, or 10 images and an artist statement, email it in, and you are done. So once again, go to studiobreak.com for more information. We'd also really appreciate it if you help spread the word with anybody that might be interested in applying. Just a few more announcements before we get out of here again. I want to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his work at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings or follow me, you can check it out at DavidLinaway.com. And my Instagram is at DavidLinaway, as well as Twitter and Facebook and all that good stuff. I was recently featured on I Like Your Work podcast by Erica B. Hess. So you can check out that interview, as well as my interview on Otcast, the mixed media tapes, with Philip J. Mellon. So, again... That's interesting because both Erica and I were featured talking about our work, so be sure and give a listen if you're interested. Let me give a quick shout-out to some new listeners that I recently met on Instagram, like Laura Trapnesik. Probably messed that up, but thanks again. Glad that you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for listening. And once again, if this is your first time checking out Studio Break, thanks for listening. Hope that you really enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. We'll talk to you real soon.